Welcome to the Eric Metaxas Show. Back again, eh? Glutton for punishment, eh? When will you ever learn? Now, here's the host that you hate to love, the man who was the reason your friend sponsored your last intervention, Eric Metaxas! Hey there, folks. Welcome to the program. Uh, it's Zmirak time on the Eric Metaxas show today so we want you to buckle your seatbelts. uh it's going to be a bumpy hour uh john has a lot of things to share some of them that uh, really should not be shared publicly but that's not going to stop john uh if you're a fan of john you know what i'm talking about and if you hate john you know what i'm talking about um we love john With John Zmirak in hour two, we have Ask Metaxas. I think you'll particularly appreciate uh, that segment uh, coming up uh, in hour two. And then we're talking to our friend Lucinda from Moink, moinkbox.com slash Eric. John Zmirak, what's on your mind? Well, I'm working on a piece now. I'm not sure when I'll be done or where I'm publishing it, but it's called but, uh, Fox News is Worse Than Bud Light or Target. Bud Light and Target never pretended to be the champions of conservative, patriotic Christian Americans. They're just companies selling products. Uh, In one case, a can of water that identifies as beer. Uh, Fox News identified as the voice of conservative, patriotic Americans. And then on election night 2020, it flipped as if there had been a coup in Guatemala, suddenly the people reading the news were reading from a totally different script that the new junta had imposed upon them. Uh, a few of Fox's hosts resisted and were promptly purged. And then they went on to purge Tucker Carlson for telling the truth too courageously too often. Now he is appearing on Twitter, just speaking as an American. No, no sponsors, no advertisers. He's not being paid. Fox News is suing him, trying to silence him, trying to say he cannot speak about American politics until his contract runs out, that it violates their non-compete agreement. That is the most insanely unenforceable non-compete claim I have ever heard of. The idea that you're competing with us, even though you're not broadcasting, you're not advertising, you're not showing on television, but we have the right to stop you from talking about politics until your contract runs out conveniently after the next presidential election. That tells me that Fox News is every bit a part of the same censorship, deep state, big tech alliance as George Soros, MSNBC, CNN, and all the others, and Facebook and Disney. The difference is they didn't pretend to be our spokesman and on our side. So if you're boycotting any product at all, you should be boycotting Fox News, all of it. Uh, Harmy Dillon, Tucker Carlson's attorney, said, I would ask Republicans to stop appearing on Fox News as guests. Stop supporting this organization. Basically, by watching anything on Fox at all, you are helping them raise the money to pay the lawyers to sue Tucker Carlson to try to silence him and strip him of his First Amendment constitutional rights. 
and strip you, ladies and gentlemen, of your liberties, um, because that's where this is going. Well, thanks for bringing it up, John, because um, I I keep saying over and over, every one of us has a part to play where you spend your money, what you do, where you shop, how you shop, uh, what you watch, what you don't watch. Obviously, I would recommend a Newsmax to people, a Newsmax, uh, uh, particularly Greg Kelly on Newsmax is fantastic. Um, and I, I want to underscore what you've said about uh, Target, Anheuser-Busch, the L.A. Dodgers. Ladies and gentlemen, you've got to understand the level of contempt they have for you, for your family, for your children. If you do not respond to that, you're like Michael Dukakis when he was asked in the debate about the theoretical rape of his wife. And he he didn't really respond with any emotion uh, as if it was just some you know theoretical thing. It was like a math problem. This is very real and we need to understand it's real and we have a, a role uh, uh, to play. John, we're going to bring you back uh, as soon as possible, if not tomorrow, then next week, because we've got so much more I want to talk to you about. We've only just begun. Thank you, John Smirak. Thank you. Hey there, folks. Welcome back. Uh, as I warned you, John Smirek is my guest. John, welcome. Hi. John, uh, you know, you write these articles at stream.org. Uh, I read them and uh, I think, you know, maybe we could talk about one of them. What do you say? I think that would be fun. That was my programming idea. Yeah, that's pretty innovative. Which, you- uh, which article shall we discuss first? Okay, well, this one is a kind of a philosophical puzzler, one of those hard moral hypotheticals like they give you in freshman ethics class, like too many people in the lifeboat. Um, I already did one called, which we talked about, how many anti-Semites should speak at your Christian conference, where I try to find the optimum number and and come to the conclusion, finally, that it ought to be zero. But I, I address all these people in the Catholic world who invited a Holocaust revisionist to one of their conferences. Well, this today's puzzling, brain-teasing hypothetical is, should we find, quote, Christian, unquote, pretexts for joining the persecutors of the church? Now, it sounds like it could be an easy answer, right? In theory. In theory, we just say no, right? No, no sounds good. But. We are contradicted by 2,000 years of precedence of Christians who said, yeah, sign me up. Can you sign me up twice to be on the safe side? So in this article, I go through past historical occasions where Christians found Christian or, you know, if you're a stickler, you'd say pseudo Christian or, you know, evil pretexts for joining <laughs> the persecutors of the church. And I'll give right. a, just a few examples. And, yeah. um, and again, the kind of people who do this tend to be what we call joiners. Um, it's a type of person, it seems to be most people, who when they see a crowd going in one direction, they just instinctively follow it. When I see a crowd rushing in one direction, I just assume it's the gathering swine running over the cliff to drown in the sea, and I run in the other direction. Now, that means I could be wrong sometimes, 
right? What if it's the it's the crowd following Jesus? But most of the time, sadly, I, I am I am correct. And my instinct is simply I see a crowd, I run in the other direction. So for the joiners, or let's talk about the joiners over the course of the of, of the centuries. Here's one historical incident. When Christians used to rescue abandoned infants from the walls of Rome. In Rome, they didn't really have abortion so much as infanticide, but they didn't even call it infanticide. They would take an unwanted infant, let's say he was handicapped or illegitimate or the father just didn't want it, uh, and they would take it out to the walls of Rome and leave it there to the elements. Their theory was they weren't killing it because the gods could save it if they wanted to, and if the gods didn't save it, then they didn't want to. That was their little rationalization. Uh, you know, Romulus and Remus were saved by a wolf. Maybe our son will be don't suckled you? by a she-wolf. It can happen, people. It can, it can happen. happen. It happens more often than you would think. Do your own research. Anyway, uh, Christians, uh, for some reason, objected to this practice of parental choice, uh, of, of reproductive freedom. And they started collecting these unwanted babies and raising them as their own and baptizing them as Christians. Pagans were baffled why they did this. They thought, why are you dumpster diving? Uh, They came up with theories that surely the Christians were raising them to be slaves, to work, or to work in brothels, or maybe they were eating them. Because remember, the idea was out there that Christianity was a cannibalism cult because people misunderstood what they heard about the Eucharist. If you were an ordinary Roman but kind of a quiet Christian— and you you heard people talking about, you know, the Christians, they're, they're taking those babies to eat them. Should you agree with them in order to fit in with the people around you? Um, would it be unchristian for you to contradict them? Would you be judgmental and unchristlike if you insisted, well, no, actually, maybe you shouldn't be killing the babies. Maybe they're doing the right thing by saving them. Well, every Christian who doesn't speak out on abortion and transgenderism and grooming what you're doing is the same as those Christians who said, yeah, well, I guess they're eating them. I don't know. I'm not going to ju- Who am I to judge? Right. Another historical incident. Sorry. Now, wait a minute. I just want to be clear. When you and I were at Yale, that's the kind of Christian I was. And I say that by way of public confession, because it's true. Uh, I remember uh, sort of backing away from uh, the outspoken Christians, not very much, frankly. Nonetheless, I didn't I didn't speak up. You, John, were the opposite. You were one of those uh, outspoken uh, uh, Christians at the time. And so I say that partially to tell people um, you can be wrong and repent. You can be wrong and get it right. And if these things uh, seem to apply to you in any way, uh, if these are your instincts, you can you can receive God's truth and repent and 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 get it right. So this right. is this is not some fatalistic pronouncement. The, these right. are things that uh, people do, but then God can uh, can get a hold of you. So I just want to be clear about that. So John, uh, you you just gave us an example from the uh, the first century. The, the for the first century. Okay, so please keep going. Now we're in the fourth century. Uh, third and fourth centuries, when Christians died rather than worship Caesar. As the Roman Empire was staggering through its crises, the third century, with the legionaries overthrowing the emperor and picking new ones, and in one case, a 
uh, auctioning off the imperial throne to the highest bidder. Once you had some solid emperors on the throne like Diocletian, they decided that they had to solidify the position of the emperor by any means necessary. So what they did was they said, you will worship me as a god. You will burn a pinch of, in, pinch of incense in front of a giant gold statue of me and worship me as a god. And Wait, let's of- be clear. We're not talking about today. We're not talking about a statue of Pope Francis. We're talking about the third and fourth centuries in Rome. Right. And the emperors before this period were not worshipped as gods. This was the Generally. latter part. Pardon? Generally not. Generally, generally not. Generally not. It got worse uh, in the period you're right. describing. Right. So your average Roman said, well, what's another God? Take it or leave it. We've got like 27 and they keep bringing new ones in from, from the Middle East and we just add them to the pantheon. So we'll worship the emperor. It's a patriotic gesture. It's like standing for the Star Spangled Banner for the Romans was kneeling before the emperor and worshiping him as a God. But there was one weird secretive sect that was unpatriotic and would not worship the emperor as a god. And they were the Christians. The Jews, by the way, were exempt from this because they might not have done it either. But the Jews had been around Rome so long that there were certain exceptions carved out. Not for the Christians. Christians had to do this. And many thousands of them, whole families were butchered in the Colosseum, eaten by lions, torn apart by leopards, killed by gladiators, and mocked by all their friends and neighbors, cheering as they were torn apart, because why? Why were they doing this? There were some Christians who went along with it, who who didn't want to be judgmental, didn't want to be unwelcoming. They wanted to be winsome. They wanted to reach out to their Roman friends, and they did that by worshiping Caesar. And they and what they did was they condemned the martyrs as being self-righteous, as being, you know, pharisaical, as clinging to rigid rules like the first commandment, instead of embracing the spirit of oneness and community with their fellow Roman pagans. So should you which side should you have taken? Should you have sided with the with the martyrs or should you have sided with the people who worship the emperor in order to reach out to their pagan neighbors and make friends with them. I tell you, um, this reminds me of what's happening now with uh, with Pride Month, with the rainbow flag. There's exactly. something about it which seems calculated to marginalize serious people of faith. By the way, Muslims... Serious Jews, Christians, anybody who would say, no, that is not something that I think is a good thing. I don't want to go along with that. Uh, the pressure to go along with it right now during the so-called Pride Month, I think Proud Pride Month is just a fatiguing joke. Uh, and I think most Americans think it's a fatiguing joke, but corporations uh, are pushing and pushing and pushing so it's really interesting, John, that you bring this up, because I didn't think we would be dealing with something like this right now. But we are dealing with something like this right now. The pressure to go along with this is just absolutely horrific. And it is something that you, you're it's like you're being accused of not being patriotic or something. But it's like not being accused of a patriotic German under Hitler. It's a different kind of patriotism. 
when 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 Biden hangs the pride flag from the White House in the place of the American flag, when it's put up in Ukraine at the U.S. embassy, when it's on every logo of every advertisement from every company, it's a new religion. We're going to a break. Be right back with more with John Smirak. talking to John Smirak. John, what's the article title that you've written at stream.org, which we're now discussing? It's one of those philosophical brain teasers. Should we find Christian pretexts for joining the persecutors of the church? Right. I'm going to say no, but you're giving us examples of people who have gone out of their way to say, why not? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So the last historical incident, you, you know something about because you wrote a book about it. In early 19th century Britain, devout Methodist William Wilberforce and his supporters set out to reform British culture. They wa- they wanted to replace the sort of watered-down Enlightenment era uh, milk-and-water Anglicanism with something fiery and apostolic. They wanted to address a bunch of social issues, domestic violence, cruelty to animals, but especially slavery and the slave trade. And you wrote the book Amazing Grace about this, which is an amazing read. And everybody should get, who has has it. Thank heard. you for saying that because I I rarely mention my book Amazing Grace. But just the other day, um, a, a kind of strange thing came up, and I uh, I, I I read the epilogue uh, to my my own book Amazing Grace. The publisher didn't want me to publish the epilogue, and I thought I think in some ways it's the best part of the book. It was uh, I, I I get tears in my eyes when I read it now uh, because of what I say uh, in, in the epilogue, but the story of, of, of Wilberforce, which you're referencing right now, it is one of the most encouraging stories in history of a Christian who worked really, really hard and struggled, but who in many ways was incredibly, beautifully, gloriously victorious uh, in his campaign, not just to end slavery, but uh, to do what you're talking about, which is to bring Christian values all through the culture, not just to end slavery and end the slave trade, but to but to bring Christian values into the wider culture. So uh, forgive my uh, my right. side note there, but thank you for bringing up my book, Amazing Grace. I'm yeah. very proud of it, and and I think it's a fun read, uh, which is not unimportant. So please and go what ahead. What you said, and it was vindicated by what I saw in a two part documentary from the BBC called 1820. No, called When the British Abolished the Slave Trade. It's a two-hour, two-part documentary. And what it focuses on is the opposition to William Wilberforce, the most powerful, wealthy, entrenched forces in England were invested in the highly profitable sugar colonies of the Caribbean. When the American Revolution happened, the British put a large percentage of their forces in the Caribbean because they made much more money off the the sugar plantations in Jamaica than they did over the tax on tea in Boston. Uh, And when when America gained its independence, the British didn't care that much because they had actually conquered some more sugar islands from France. Uh, 
Many middle-class Englishmen had investments in companies that were engaged in the slave trade or engaged in sugar. Excuse me, the Church of England. I was about to get to that. Okay. Everybody in England who who drank tea benefited from cheap sugar made in the Caribbean. By slaves. By slaves. And remember, they worked the slaves to death. That's why they had to have a slave trade. The slaves didn't live long enough to have children, unlike in the United States where slavery was cruel, but conditions weren't so bad. The black population could continue to naturally increase. In the Caribbean, there was almost 100% death rate within five years. That's how brutal the the slavery was in the Caribbean. They had to keep bringing in new ones. It was like the front lines in World War I with people dying in the trenches. So- When Wilberforce and his allies sought to fight this, they weren't greeted as heroes. They were called traitors. They were told they were they were accused of trying to help France by taking away Britain's profitable colonies while France would still have its and the the countries were at war. They were also said that to be puppets of the sugar industry in India, which didn't rely on slavery or they were called self-righteous zealots who wanted to impose their private morality on their neighbors. And this is something I learned from that documentary. Anglican clergy went to Jamaica and found that the Methodist missionaries were stirring up the slaves to protest their mistreatment. And they tried to get the crown to ban all Methodists from the island of Jamaica because they were undermining slavery. I just want to clarify, folks. So we're talking now about something that is happening today. You have the dead, woke church that goes along with Caesar, that goes along with the LGBTQ uh, propaganda. You have them opposing the evangelicals, the faithful Catholics, those who would dare to say Christianity is true, the Bible is true, these things don't change. You had that happening, as John is describing, because the Church of England mostly was the establishment. They didn't care about the slaves. They didn't have a biblical view of life and the dignity of life if it was African life. Um, So it's amazing, John, for you to remind me of this, that this battle that Wilberforce fought and by God's grace won, uh, it, it, it was it's very similar to some of the things we're seeing today. And he by God's grace, prevailed. So please keep going. One more hysterical his historical parallel. It was, first of all, I want to say it's always absurdly easy to find rationalizations and Bible quotes for siding with the world against the church. It always feels safer to bow before Caesar and make friends with men. And as you wrote in your book, Letter to the American Church, It was easy for German Christians in the 30s to focus on the evils of communism, the virtue of patriotism, the decadence of the Weimar Republic, so they didn't have to speak out against the Nazis. And it's easy today to pretend that Christian compassion demands we bow before today's fashionable idols, from legal abortion to transgender madness, from fascist lockdowns and censorship to mandates for abortion-tainted vaccines. It's so tempting to claim that pro-lifers, pro-family activists, and other dissidents, that they're judgmental Pharisees. Oh, Lord, I thank you that I am not like these extremists. But at some point, you have to take sides. Which side are you really on? The answer will be made unspeakably clear by Christ when you come before him for judgment. 
That's and this the last is last words of the column. And this is where we should uh, end this segment. We'll have uh, you for one more segment, but we should say, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in case you didn't know it, God is a judge. Uh, he is love, but that love manifests itself in judgment against evil. And we have to take that very, very seriously. Um, we need to take that seriously. We'll be right back. back with John Zmirak. Uh, John, we've just talked about a wonderful article that you wrote, and thank you for reminding me of the good news of William Wilberforce's battle, because he was fighting satanic forces, market forces. Uh, really, really, they're always the same, right? You've got the zeitgeist, you've got these these satanic forces that, you know, they're wrapped up in the, in, in, in the market in, 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 you know, Hey, we're doing this just because, and you're, you're reminding us that by the grace of God, he won that battle against the establishment, which included the church of England, most of the church of England at the time. Uh, I talk about the infernal Trinity of Caesar, Mammon and Sodom. That's what we're dealing with right now. And they are working together hand in glove. And when you see the Biden administration, and billion-dollar corporations promoting LGBTQ, my name is Legion, it, it's kind of obvious that a pagan juggernaut is rolling over us. And uh, if we throw pebbles at it, it doesn't mean we're being unchristian. It means we're doing the right thing. Correct. Um, we need to stand bravely against it. I will not stop saying it. You, you. I hope people listening to this program understand you must never, ever, ever, ever Shop at Target. I don't care how far you have to drive. Uh, you must never go to an L.A. Dodgers game. I don't care if it's some faith and family night, some nonsense. And you should um, not. And you should stop watching Fox News as long as they're suing Tucker Carlson to stop him from speaking on his own time and his own dime about his what he thinks is an American citizen. Folks, we've got to take these things seriously. If these people don't understand that they will pay a price, that there are Americans who actually care about our children and our families and about America, if you're not willing to pay that very small price, um, you're helping evil to win. And it is evil um, in, in any case. So, John, uh, what, what other things have you written about that we can discuss today? Well, I had a very unusual experience, Eric. I, I know a lot of people are talking about their alien abductions. I had a, a similar experience. I had an apparition of a time traveler from the year 2073. And he brought me a history textbook of a post-American history textbook, which analyzed how democracy and the Constitution were abolished in the United States. And I have a small excerpt from it. Maybe you'd just like to hear me read part of it. It's kind of amazing that uh, you really met this time traveler, John. I, uh, I'm amazed by that. But, but the most important thing is that he gave you a textbook. Yeah. In the year 2073. He knew that's what I would want. I didn't want some technical doodad. I wanted a textbook. Right. And the textbook uh, and the idea that textbooks are being printed in 2073 
that's really a stretch, but we're going to take your word for it. Well, you're assuming there'll still be electricity then. Yeah. Yes. Uh, And and so he tells you about the downfall of what the American Republic, the United States of America. So go ahead. Tell us, what did you read in this textbook, John? Go ahead. The transition of the former United States of America from liberal mass democracy into an intolerant one party oligarchy was not inevitable. Single decisions by presidents and repeated choices by the former Congress that once represented citizens can be identified as turning points. The most crucial was the panic-driven passage of the Patriot Act in 2001. That widely supported law removed most oversight from secret intelligence agencies and allowed them to cooperate, even to turn those agencies into politicized secret police on the Soviet and East German model that are not answerable to elected officials or even the courts. Uh, The introduction of secret rubber stamp courts that could overrule constitutional protections, the sharing of data about citizens collected by foreign intelligence agencies, and then the labeling of dissidents as domestic extremists. All these practices began with this law's passage by a cheering bipartisan majority. Then the Barack Obama administration decided to take this weapon of surveillance and coercion left to them by the George Bush White House and use it against their domestic political opponents. Get out of town. They would never do that. George Bush. Oh, come on. Really? Really? He while he was busy cutting brush, uh, he they passed a law repealing the Constitution. Actually, I'm sorry. That's very funny. (laughs) While George George W. Bush was at the ranch cutting brush, they repealed the law abolishing the Constitution called the Patriot Act. And most conservatives, myself included, again, guilty, said, yeah, yeah, uh, George Bush, uh, he's a good guy. He wouldn't do a bad thing. Principled people like Naomi Wolf on the left and John Zmirak on the right said, "Uh, excuse me, this is a bad idea. This is a very, very, very bad idea. And guess what? You guys were right. I actually have an entry I wrote for an encyclopedia, the American Conservatism and Encyclopedia. If you read the entry on the war on terror, my I, I make all these predictions about the Patriot Act, which sadly came true. I hate to be right about this stuff. So back to the textbook. The most obvious outcome of the Obama decision was the lame duck Obama-Biden White House and its resolve to use the FBI against the incoming legitimately elected Donald Trump administration when they, you know, manufacturing false charges of treason that you know are fake based on fake evidence and feeding them to the media that led to the crippling of the Trump administration. He was basically a lame duck from day one in many ways. And a phone, two phony impeachment trials, both of which were based on information the FBI knew to be untrue. The FBI, which allegedly answered to the elected president. But now we know the deep state is the highest branch of government and it answers to no one. Each fork in the road, there were choices. And by the way, Satan is no one. Go ahead. Each fork in the road that led to autocracy made reversing course harder. But given political courage, the popularly elected Congress could have stalled and reversed the process at several points. For for instance, well, Donald Trump could have conducted a campaign against the deep state actors who paralyzed his presidency. He could have insisted on vetoing any bill that funded the FBI and the CIA. 
with using it as leverage to do a deep clean reform of them. The Republican Party, the chief victim of these abuses, could have rallied against their power. But for various reasons, none of these things exist. Now, back to the textbook. If we truly wish to identify the point of no return, after which a return to liberal democracy and popular government became impossible, we have to look elsewhere. It's hard to believe, but for two years, the Republican Party actually controlled the House of Representatives. Uh, During the Biden administration, the Durham report laid out in detail how the deep state had conspired to remove an elected president. Massive evidence emerged of miscarriages of justice and FBI instigation in the persecution of election integrity demonstrators from January 6th. Now, the House was intended by our founders to be the guarantee of liberty, the power of the purse. It was the in the British. Holy cow. Wait a minute. We've gone long. Folks, we'll be right back. Final segment with John Smirak. Okay, folks, we're talking uh, to John Zmirak about a hypothetical textbook that he claims to have received from a time traveler coming back from 27.3 about the downfall of America. It's really uh, it's really uplifting stuff, John. Thank you. Please continue. I'm, I'm here to help. The House of Representatives, historians note, was intended by America's liberty conscious founders to serve as the ultimate check and balance against the abuse of power by the president or the courts. Every one of the founders talked about the power of the purse. They looked to the British Parliament, which had created democracy in Britain by cutting off funds to the king. Remember, the English Civil War happened when Charles I tried to rule without Parliament. These people were obsessed with these precedents. So they, that's why the, all funding bills have to originate in the House of Representatives. So we must shake our heads at the decision of a Republican majority in 2023 to continue without challenge funding the same intelligence agencies which targeted and threatened core groups whom the Republicans claim to represent, conservatives, Christians, pro-lifers, and parents who objected to Marxist or gay activist indoctrination in schools. Rarely in history do we see so blatant a failure of political leaders to champion those whom they rely on for support. The closest analogy we can find is the decisions made by Native American chiefs in the 18th and 19th century to sell off their tribe's land and rights in return for a few gold coins and barrels of rum. We might savor the irony that the country which gained so much land from the Indians in this manner ended up being destroyed by the very same tactic applied to its own tribal leaders. These Republicans who failed to protect either their voters or the Constitution were probably not directly bribed to make these choices. Most acted, it seemed, out of political cowardice and short-term self-interest. They could not be seen to shut down the government if it meant closing popular national parks. These Republicans' names are all justly forgotten by history. Especially Kevin McCarthy's. Um, I <laughs> and have Marjorie to... Taylor Greene, who signed on with all this. Well, she that tells me that there are time. two sides to the story, it, 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 because there are people like Marjorie Taylor Greene who were persuaded. No, uh, she, she sold out for a bag of cash and some coupons to Cracker Barrel. Uh, well, that's another way of putting it. Um <laughs> It is. Uh, it's interesting, John, because, of course, this is hypothetical and, and fictional, uh, but it's very real uh, what you're talking about, these issues. The question whether Donald Trump could be reelected uh, and because I still don't believe that he 
understood what was happening in his first term or, or or didn't just didn't understand the forces arrayed against him. Uh, and he was thinking, if I play nice, I'll get farther. Obviously he was very, very wrong, but the question uh, whether he could uh, make his way back into the white house, because he has been very, very vocal and clear, particularly the other day when he spoke in uh, Bedminster, New Jersey at following uh his indictment uh, in um, uh, or whatever it was called in uh, Miami, that he will go to war uh, with the deep state, that he understands things now that I don't believe he did understand. I I hope that that's true. So I am hopeful that this textbook will not be written, but we don't know. But we have have a lot of work to do. It's up to the House to make these decisions, not the president. And the House sold us out. Do you the Democrats would not fund the the immigration law because they are serious about holding power and and advancing their ideas. Right. Our Republicans voted to fund the FBI and the CIA and the DOJ. Right. Even though it's persecuting lifers and and moms who go to school board meetings. So the people who are serious about getting power get power. The people who are in it to be invited to golfing parties and to get jobs as lobbyists. They are the Indians who Indian chiefs who sell their tribal land. John Smirak, as always, thank you very much. Folks, thanks for listening. 